Hello everyone, it's March 12th, 2019. This week, Hayabusa 2 touches down on Ryugu, and we talk to Anthony Scoderi about AI in aerospace, which is very important. I'm guessing it makes touchdowns on distant asteroids possible, among other things. Let's get to it, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 201 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Dan. And I'm Dennis. So I just realized, should I say 201 or 201 or 201? Oh, say 201, please. 201. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think I like that one the best. So Dennis and I are now on the same... I'm not trying to harp on you, Dennis, but Dennis <laughs> and I are now on the same time zone, which is pretty cool. I got an hour less sleep last night. It's funny. I went to bed at seven o'clock. Oh, no, actually, I went to bed later than that. I went to bed at eight o'clock and I feel like I went to bed at nine o'clock. This is what podcasters are contractually required to do is every time there's a time change, we have to talk about it. Grumble, grumble. Oh, did I tell you guys? Sorry, I'm going to uh, take over the banter here. Did I tell you guys that I made uh, empanadas yesterday? No. no. Yes, I made beef empanadas with olives and boiled eggs. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I Every time I make a hand pie or, you know, some sort of... Uh, meat or fruit-filled pastry. I always love making it. I always love the result. And I always wonder why I don't do this more often. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I had like three empanadas for breakfast this morning. <laughs> well, that sounds oh, good. That is awesome. It's very good. And I decided to fry them this time instead of bake them. Uh, would not recommend. I tore every single one of them open while they were frying. <laughs> And it doesn't add that much. I mean, they're just as good baked with a little egg wash. But there's your there's your food corner. Yeah, we haven't had any food talk in a while. This is non-sous vide food talk, but it's still good. <gasps> oh, uh, I can do some sous vide talk. One of our listeners wrote in and he suggests uh, a 63 and a half degree egg for one hour and then crack directly into simmering water for a minute to firm up the whites. Uh, this is from Michael Felding. He calls them lava eggs. And uh, my wife is very particular about her whites. She doesn't like loose whites. And I very much do like loose whites. And so I'm going to have to do this for her next time I'm making eggs Benedict. I think this will be right up her alley. Did I tell you guys? I mean, I'm weird. I, I just don't like eggs, period. Makes makes breakfast very, very difficult for me. Oh, uh, I mean, there's plenty of good non-eggy breakfast, but the easiest and best are all... Yeah, but I mean, some restaurants, like, I mean, I guess eating out is kind of what I mean. Some of them, you know, I'll just be like, okay, this page, this page, and this page I can ignore. All right, I have this part of this page I can actually look at to order from. <laughs> we, we need to get you into like a really, really high-end restaurant and have some gourmet chef cook you some really amazing eggs and see if you can even tolerate them when they're really good. Oh, well, okay, well, I mean, to be, yes. Yeah, so I did have a uh, tartare at, you know, a really high-end place in Vegas once. And that I was more than fine to just mush that egg in with the meat, with the beef. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was, so it was a beef tartare with an egg on top. Yeah. The yolk sitting on top of the raw beef. And so oh, That with yes. some crackers. That was actually Ooh. really good. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that was the egg talk, food, mm. food, egg talk. Let's move on to <laughs> space talk and uh, let's move on to some space flight history. So any winners? All right. This week in space flight history, we have eggs in space no i'm just kidding um so i did not do a clue last week and then ben hallert wrote in and said hey here's a really good one so the winner this week is ben hallert because i went with his suggestion and it's a really good one and i didn't even have this on my this week in space flight list and i should have so this week in space flight history is march 17th 1958 uh, the u.s naval research laboratory launched vanguard one on this day and we've talked about some other vanguard missions but vanguard one uh, is it's special. It's the very first solar powered satellite. And 
it's the oldest satellite in orbit still today, which mm. is really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've passed uh, the 80 or the, the 50 years marks. So that's that's pretty cool. So uh, it will not only is it still in orbit, but it will continue to be in orbit for around 200 years. The initial estimate was like 2000 years. Uh, and then they did some science and realized that the atmosphere extends a lot higher than we thought. Um, and, and that literally is part of what Vanguard 1 was intended to do. And so they went from their initial estimate of 2000 down to uh, 240 years. And we've done about 50 years, so a little under 200 years. It'll still be up there. They put it into a very high orbit, as you can guess from that long lifespan. It was placed into a 654 by 3969 kilometer orbit. That's uh, 406 miles by 2400 miles. Not only is it still up there, which is just kind of a physics thing, but this thing actually operated for almost seven years, which is really fantastic. Um, that's that's quite a long time for you know one of our very first satellites to uh, to continue operating. Um, so this thing was uh, called the Grapefruit Satellite. Um, actually, I found a lot of news articles that called it a moon. Because I forgot that way back when we just called everything an artificial moon before we started calling them satellites. So they called it the Grapefruit Moon. It's a 16.5 centimeter or 6.4 inch diameter aluminum sphere. It weighs 1.47 kilograms or 3.2 pounds. And um, the spherical nature of this thing is actually very intentional. Initially, they were thinking about maybe using a cone shape so that they didn't have to have a, a payload fairing around it. Um, they could just have a uh, like a deployment mechanism. But everybody in the scientific community was very clear. This needs to be a sphere so that it doesn't present different drag coefficients depending on which uh, orientation it's in. And so the the Navy basically said, OK, but let's make it a small sphere. <laughs> and they said, no, the bigger the sphere, the better, because that way we can see it reflect better. It'll have a higher coefficient of friction or a co- uh, drag coefficient. It has to be big. And so the, the Navy said, OK, well, what if we make a small one to start and then we'll make big ones later? And everybody went, OK, that's pretty good. So uh, it's this, you know, six inch sphere um, with six solar cells and six antennae. So the antennae point straight out. They're probably like seven inches long. Um, there are four around the equator and then two at the poles and then six solar cells that are just kind of stuck in, in between the antennae. Um, and they look really ugly. <laughs> I mean, this thing looks lumpy and, and weird. And, uh, then two other lumps that it has on it, actually one lump with two ends is the uh, the transmitters so there is one battery powered transmitter and one solar cell power transmitter and what's interesting well let, let me talk about why these two this pair is interesting together so science there wasn't a heck of a lot of science done with this vehicle but the transmitters were part of an experiment you know mainly they transmitted engineering data um, but they also could be used to calculate total electron count, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, you take, I think it's a meter square and define a column that goes from the surface all the way up to theoretically the edge of the, uh, the edge of the atmosphere. But in this case, it's just to the satellite. And you take this meter, uh, square meter cross section column and count all of the electrons. Obviously, they're not counting individual electrons. They're probably looking at transmissivity rates or something like that. But total electron count uh, is one of the things that they did. Yeah, we call that column density. Yeah, exactly. 
So, so because it was a sphere, they were able to do drag studies and look at atmospheric density. Then they also had two different thermistors inside the vehicle to test the thermal protection system. And then uh, they did some interferometry, because if you're going to do good science, there's got to be interferometry somewhere, right? Like, that's what we've learned on this show. Um, so these two different transmitters, not only did they have two different power sources, so they acted as backups for each other, but also they were slightly offset in frequency i think like 0.8 of a hertz like it's really um not a huge or 0.8 point eight of a megahertz sorry which would be what a thousandth of a hertz um, so this very small difference um, but they're just barely offset so that you can do angle comparison between these two transmitters or, or uh do interferometry in these two transmitters and get a very accurate angle comparison so you know exactly where this thing is in the sky and by doing that they were able to uh, measure surface points on the earth you know just by i believe just by setting up a receiver measuring very precisely where the satellite is and then using that to kind of backtrack to figure out where you are and they were able to determine that the earth not only is not round right which everybody knows that it, it kind of bulges out on the equator but additionally, it has a slight north-south asymmetry, so it's kind of like pear-shaped, where um, the north pole is a little bit slimmer and the south pole is a little bulgier. And they were able to to determine that just using this, you know, very very early satellite. I believe they actually did this during the international. What was that called? The uh, geoscience, geophysics year? Something yeah, like that? the geophysical year. I think it's what it's geophysical called. year. Yeah. Um, I, I believe that drew upon upon Vanguard One as an instrument. So there you go. That's this week in spaceflight history. That's really cool. All right. And what is our clue for next week? Now that we actually have one, because I know <laughs> last week we didn't have one. So yes, <laughs> we do have a clue. So everyone yeah. can make a guess. <laughs> next week in 1965, the clue is to boldly go to a slightly different place. I have no idea, but I like the I like the clue. Okay. Well. Not sure about that one myself, but I'm sure someone out there knows. So just uh, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Hayabusa two touches down on Ryugu. Ryugu. I I can't I can't <laughs> pronounce good. it. Yeah, it's a, yeah Ryugu. So what's the news on this one, Dennis? Because you uh, you have some details here about the latest development. Yeah, man. I they they basically came up with a wonderful sort of uh, a reporter briefing uh, presentation that you can find online, and we'll have in the show notes. But uh, they did their first uh, sampling, and so this is the mission, right, that the Japanese JAXA is in charge of, not to be confused with OSIRIS-REx, which is currently scanning the asteroid Bennu uh, before it does its sampling, which would be next year. But Hayabusa 2, I mean, this is, I think I can officially say this is my favorite, it's certainly my mm -hmm. favorite ongoing space mission, and it might be possibly my favorite mission of all time, just because I think I said it before, it has like everything in the kitchen sink involved in here between the rovers and the sampling. But anyway, so yeah, on February 22nd, it did its first sample. It got there last year, and since then it's been kind of scanning the surface and kind of making 3D maps of it, getting an idea of what it's like. And that was important because, I don't know if you guys caught, but they uh, found it was a lot more gravelly than they anticipated. And so they tried to do some tests uh, on Earth to kind of see whether or not their sampling mechanism would still work in this more gravelly terrain. But they went to the, uh, they chose the landing site, uh, L08-E1, or now, uh, you know, nicknamed Tamate Bako, which means treasure box. 
So a couple months ago, they uh, released their theme of naming features, uh, the Hayabusa 2 team, uh, having to do with fairy tales and, uh, you know, children's stories. And so Tamate Bako shows up in one of those, you know, fairy tales and it specifically is translated as it means treasure box with the idea being that this is the first treasure that Hayabusa 2 is picking up from Ryugu. So that's a nice name. And when the touchdown happened and the sample was collected, there was a video of a terrestrial test that was being floated around on the internet. And now, though, they've released what the actual mission took uh, uh, using what was called the uh, Cam H or Small Monitor Camera, or in its actual Japanese, it's called the Monitor Camera, like in English, but just that's the way they arrange it. And so anyway, this uh, is a tiny little 10 centimeter or so camera that was funded by public donations, which is pretty cool. And it kind of sits on the side of Hayabusa 2, which uh, is a box basically with the solar panels on the two sides and then the sampling cone that kind of sticks out of the bottom downward towards the uh, asteroid. And the footage is wild, like all footage of, you know, asteroids mm -hmm. and <laughs> extraterrestrial sort of things tend to be. Um, it's five and a half minutes of sample collection, but sped up by about a factor of five. So it's like a minute and change. And that uh, I looked into was all the footage that was taken. It basically knew to kind of turn on, you know, at some point before the actual sample and then take, uh, I think it was taking a picture once every five or sorry, one frame per second. And the, I mean, I don't know, like there was a number of cool things about the actual footage. Um, I love that at first I kind of had to orient myself. What, what am I looking at exactly? Mm -hmm. And it's tricky because right. Hayabusa 2 uh, main bus is very reflective. And so you're just seeing Ryugu basically reflecting off of it on the right side of the frame. And then on the left, you're seeing Ryugu actually underneath you. And so that was pretty cool that you kind of see this mirror image happening as it was descending. You know what I found really disorienting was since there's no distance haze, it's really hard to judge how close the vehicle is to the surface. And it feels kind of um, fractal. It feels like the closer you get, the more detail there is. And what really solved that problem in my head was actually looking at the shadow and comparing how close the shadow was to the arm and, and how quickly that distance was changing. And then it kind of made sense to me what was going on. That's funny. I was thinking the same exact thing. Like there's there's there was one image that was taken with the monitored camera from 4.1 meters. And I would say like, oh, it's about a foot above the ground. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if I were to just try mm -hmm. eyeballing it. Yeah, because I mean, there's no context for how big these boulders are. I mean, big boulders look like small boulders just at higher magnification yeah it's a really cool video like you see i don't think i've ever seen movement on a surface with gravity this low which it almost looks like the surface gravel is actually being blown around but it's not that's just you know the impact and then everything just goes mm. flying it, it's such a strange it's actually really weird to look at i mean yeah it, it does look like kind of like a whirlwind or something sort of yeah it's passing through afterwards but did you guys notice that all the rocks are moving in one direction they all move from right to left at least given this field of view i can't figure out why that would be the case well it might just be the field of view i don't know but yeah, just to see the impact in this is sped up by 10. So you're looking at it 10 times faster, but it looks like it slammed into it and then stuff just went flying 
everywhere, but it didn't. It gently touched it, and then stuff went very slowly flying everywhere. Right. It's kind of like filming an impact with a high-speed camera, and then you watch the playback, except that this is, you know, the <laughs> opposite. We're actually, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. No. You know what I think it is? Because it did leave the surface at an oblique angle to how it came in. Yeah. So maybe that's just it passing through the debris at an angle yeah, and why you that, see it move in one way. That sounds pretty reasonable. I can't think of any other reason why. Yeah, I didn't notice that, but yeah, that's very apparent when you look for it. And I um, I had to do a little tracking down. So remember, what's the albedo of this asteroid, right? Not only is oh. it an asteroid, but it's a carbonaceous one, which is pretty yeah, dark. So it's like a, like a vinyl record, basically. Yeah. And this, you know, the video, it doesn't look like it. And so I was able to convince myself that, okay, even with this small, uh, the small monitor camera, that they are overexposing it to all hell. And the way you can tell is that you can see one of the target markers that they dropped. Oh, really? So they've got these five gray kind of bean bags. So that way they don't bounce. They have a very inelastic collision with the surface. And they just drop them, you know, as a frame of reference for guidance during the descent procedures. And you can see at the very beginning, uh, in the lower left, a white dot. And that's one of the beanbags. Yep. And it wow. should be gray, but you see how bright white it is because wow. they, in order to bring up the contrast of the gra the regolith and the gravel and all that, they had to... Yeah, make that one look white. No way, that's insane. <laughs> and just like uh, the uh, right insight had the little plaque with the names etched on it. So in this case, uh, that beanbag had names etched of planetary society members. And so, wow. so there's five of these in all. There's there's five of them. Oh, you know, I think you can see more as they uh, on the way back out. So in the top right corner of this footage, there's part of the spacecraft that actually looks yellow. Oh, I thought yeah. that was part of the logo, the JAXA logo. I yeah, thought. is that? I, I don't know if that's part of the JAXA logo or if it's uh, a processing artifact, but I wonder if this was shot in RGB color. Yeah, because I mean the the foil does have you know kind of a orangey tint to it. Maybe yeah, maybe maybe it just appears a little yellow because it's just ha something to do with the angle that you know the light is reflecting coming in there that you're not seeing so much the reflection of the surface, but you're just kind of now seeing the actual yellow of the foil. I'm not an optical scientist. <laughs> <laughs> the bullet that they fired, I see, was made out of tantalum. Mm. And uh, just uh, like last week, a friend of mine was digging around in a components box looking for a component for me to borrow. And he pulls something out. He's like, oh, check this out. This is a tantalum capacitor. And I was like, what? And like, we kind of talked about how it's kind of a hybrid capacitor, but they use a little lump of tantalum. So it's absolutely not interesting to anybody else but me. <laughs> but I think it's kind of cool that this bullet was made out of tantalum. No, that is cool. I don't think I've ever handled tantalum in my life. <laughs> that is an element that I barely even knew about. Like, what do they use tantalum for? You don't hear about that one. Not much. It's not, yeah, yeah. I'm one of the more popular ones. But uh, yeah, it's cool. The uh, sort of uh, press package has, and you could just look up what the projectile looks like. And it is, it looks, you know, oh my goodness. It reminds me of, uh, you remember Pogs? Mm -hmm. It looks like one of the slammers. It's kind of mm. heavier metal ones, but it's a little rounded, too rounded to be a slammer, I guess. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so right. So like you said, the way the sampling mechanism works involves uh, a tantalum bullet being fired. And it's, uh, it's about a five gram bullet. It has a velocity of about 300 meters per second as it's, you know, 
impacting the surface. And so that's enough to go and kick up all the debris that then collects in the sampler horn. And I thought it was pretty interesting how they uh, can tell basically when the collection should be happening and when to trigger the bullet. And so there's a uh, laser rangefinder that is at the base of the horn, or sorry, I guess the laser's at the top, and it's got a little plate target at the base of the horn. And so this horn, right, it's the tube kind of sticking out of the bottom. And once it touches down, the horn compresses a little, and that either means that the plate's distance from the laser will change, which this laser rangefinder will detect and then trigger the bullet, or it might push the plate kind of off to the side or something, right? It might change the angle, and it, the laser would then miss the plate entirely. And if either of those happen, triggers the bullet, and then the spacecraft kind of knows to kind of get out of there then uh, and let the stuff collect. And so uh, if I got the timeline right, after this had happened, right, it pulls itself back up. They waited a few hours, and then because a lot of the material is just collecting around the teeth like these little kind of teeth at the bottom of the horn, they apply a delta V of negative one centimeter per second to the spacecraft to then kind of give, to jostle loose that material and let it slowly float up. Technically not float, right? <laughs> slowly work its way up to the top of the horn where there is the uh, collector uh, area. And so they waited 40 minutes for that to happen. And then because... Uh, Initially, they wanted to do three samplings, so they have uh, three chambers, A, B, and C at the top. And then they have a kind of cylinder, you know, with a open, uh, with a part of it kind of taken out and opened, like uh, we talked before the show, how uh, it's kind of like those uh, pet feeders, you know, rotate, and then sometimes they'll be open to a different chamber. And so that's basically how they're going to then, you know, keep their uh, samples uh separated from each other because this is just a surface sample and the next one we can talk about in a bit is going to be the subsurface sampling which will be really cool and so uh like we alluded to before um the reason why a lot of the flex at least we're assuming or tend to be drifting across the frame in one direction is that the spacecraft rose uh, at an oblique angle just after kind of pushing off the surface you can imagine it didn't go straight back you know up and so uh, the thrusters uh, were in a difficult position to get back to their home position that they wanted. So they had to do a 120th turn around the y-axis and then a 1-6th turn around the z-axis and then fired their thrusters to get back to home position, which worked out fine. And the way the uh, mission specialists themselves put it was, quote, Hayabusa 2 achieved a perfect somersault over Ryugu, like a, quote, lunar somersault, and then returned to the home position in a dignified manner, which I just think is a lovely way to talk about <laughs> your uh, spacecraft. After a successful sampling, it was still humble enough to return, you know, as it, <laughs> as it should in a dignified manner. And so it left a nice little dark splotch behind, which was some newly exposed regoliths. So that was a, a question I had seen some people asking on Twitter, uh, just from the thrusters and everything as it was approaching the surface. So that was the sampling. And then you also have, uh, I guess, what's coming up well in just a couple of weeks, the subsurface sampling. Yeah, yeah. So this is really exciting. So the original plan called for three samplings, and it sounds like they're going to cancel one of them just to keep things uh, safe, you know, not risk things. This seemed to be a very successful operation. And so the next one, uh, well, here's here's what's next in the docket. Uh, March 20th to 22nd, uh, at some point, they're going to be doing the Sent Operation CRA-1, which is basically 
basically just a, a return to the surface, kind of like a trial run of where their next uh, location is going to be. And so both of these targets are equatorial, but this one is much more on the eastern hemisphere, uh, this next target. And when they finally figure out exactly where they're going to go, in April, what is literally translated as the week of April 1st, uh, is when they're going to do their subsurface sampling. And so the mission has what's called the Small Carry-On Impactor, or SCI, which, unlike this bullet, this thing is not a bullet. This is a 2.5 kilogram or 5.5 pound copper element that they uh, will be firing via an explosive charge within the spacecraft at half a kilometer altitude. And they anticipate this will form a nice several meter diameter crater. And so after they do this, they will be waiting. I'm not sure exactly how long, probably a day or two to kind of let things settle. Because with this sort of low surface gravity environment, you're going to have debris stay in the air for quite a while. Or not in the air, right? <laughs> Float above the surface for quite a while. And then, and then after that, the sample will be kind of like this one where the horn comes down, they fire the bullet. Except now it's going to be sampling what was once under, you know, half a meter or so of regolith. So that's pretty cool. I'm excited about that. Like I said, I love this mission because the two uh, rovers uh, that... So there were three rovers sent uh, mascot, which was battery powered and stopped operating after about you know, 17, 19 hours, something like that, which was planned, and it, it was a success. But uh, the two other rovers that were uh, JAXs, uh, Hebo and Owl, are still operational, although there haven't been any reports as to what they've done. Uh, at least I haven't found on the Hayabusa 2 page any kind of updates. But they, you know, are solar-powered and still alive, as far as I can tell. And then uh, later this year, in July, is when the next rover is scheduled to be deployed. And so this is, uh, I have Rover 2, essentially, is its name, although I'm sure they'll give it a nickname when it gets there. And it's it's uh, about twice the size of the Hibo and uh, Owl, which is essentially to say it's it looks like if you just took Hibo and Owl and just fused them together, you get this Rover hmm. 2. And so that'll be fun. So, I mean, we'll get more surface images from robots that, remember, they don't rove, they hop <laughs> mm -hmm. from place to place. So that'll be fun when that happens. Let's do some short and sweet. And what's our first one, Ben? All right. First up, Crew Dragon returned safely. This is a short one. So after a successful undocking and withdrawal from the ISS, Crew Dragon DM-1 completed a 15-minute re-entry burn and splashed down in the Atlantic. NASA said that Dragon performed better than expected, but that there's still a lot of work to do before humans can fly on the vehicle, hopefully later this year. So that's your Crew Dragon return news. Uh, moving on, uh, EELV comes to an end, but in name only. In 1994, the Evolved Expendable Launch Vehicle, or the EELV, was established at the behest of Congress in order to modernize U.S. launch capabilities for national security. This led to the development of the Atlas V and Delta IV rockets and eventual merger of their two respective companies, Lockheed Martin and Boeing. However, recent advances in launch vehicle reusability have prompted a name change with SpaceX, ULA, and Blue Origin all developing at least partially reusable launch systems. The Air Force has renamed EELV to NSSL, or the National Security Space Launch Program. So that's the end of EELV. And finally, MAVEN begins aerobraking to a lower orbit. Since it arrived at Mars in late 2014, MAVEN has been flying in a high apoarian orbit. This allowed it to enjoy high kinetic energy at periarian when it occasionally dipped into the upper atmosphere. 
Now the vehicle has begun 10 weeks worth of 125-kilometer aerobrakes to bring it into a lower orbit, in anticipation of its support of the Mars 2020 rover. It will eventually reach a 4,500-kilometer Apoarian, down from its current 6,030-kilometer Apoarian. The team intends to support the mission through 2030. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have a legit correction once again, which is actually the same one brought up, I guess, a second time. So uh, yeah. this is a correction to a correction. <laughs> right. So last week we talked about hypergolics and ICBMs, and this week we got a message from an anonymous uh, Twitter user. Um, so it's Boca Chica Mark Watney, which was kind of a, a joke account. <laughs> I don't think they're super active anymore. But um, anyway, they claim to have some credentials um, at the end of this. I'm just going to I'm going to read this. And so you can you can see this might be somebody who who probably wants to remain anonymous. But I don't know. It, it's fun to I don't think we've ever gotten a serious message from one of these joke accounts before. Which is, <laughs> yeah, I Well, I mean, how fun. do you really know it's a joke account apart from that it just doesn't have many followers or tweets and stuff like well, he's just somebody it, who's not very active but not necessarily a joke account. well i mean yeah, anonymous if you look account at, maybe <laughs> yeah well if you if you look at it like it is themed like he he makes jokes about um being stuck in boca chica and making a distiller out of spare parts and i mean it, it is a joke account yeah no i'm see, i'm seeing yeah the first tweet was talking about a potato salad and lunch much easier to grow in texas than on mars <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so it was started after the uh, the starship or the the starship hopper was blown over. That's kind of where the jokes come from. Anyway, I'm gonna just go ahead and read this. Correction or correction. Our current land-based ICBM, the Minuteman Three, actually does use hypergolic fuel, MMH and N204. It's not its main fuel, uh, but it is used in the PSRE, the Propulsion System Rocket Engine. Uh, basically, it's the part of the missile that points and releases the warhead when it reaches the upper part of its suborbital trajectory. It's actually a Rocketdyne RS-14 engine, if you'd like to see what it actually uses. So, in a way, your expert was correct, as they use the hypergolic fuel for its long-term storage abilities, as well as the solid fuel first stage, but it's not the main fuel for the mission, so you could say the correction is partially correct. Trust me on this one, I've had to personally enter many launch facilities with possible contaminated environments due to a PSRE leak alarm. Most often it's a false alarm, but given the nature of chemicals involved, uh, you tend to err on the side of caution. So thank you very much. Yeah. I guess the thing that we failed to take into account is that obviously these missiles have multiple fuels because there are various stages and there are the things that launch from the missiles, right? Mm -hmm. So you have that mm -hmm. and those will most likely use a different fuel. So yeah. We have an interview this week, and we have Anthony Scoberi, co-founder of GridSpace, and he's going to be talking to us this week about the use of artificial intelligence in the field of aerospace, which is really cool. Let's uh, get a little bit of a background here. So if you could just tell us about yourself. Sure. Um, so, uh, I mean, originally my, my academic background was uh, I did undergrad in, in physics at Stanford and uh, then did grad school in um, aerospace engineering at Stanford. And then my research there was mostly on um, graduate gravitational lensing, um, weak gravitational lensing, uh, used to uh, look for uh, dark matter, um, mostly for characterizing future instruments to, to do those sorts of searches. Uh, I then went to JPL, where um, one of the early projects I worked on was Juno, 
uh, which is funny, like, you know, you know, sec to stat, you know, sec to end to end, like development on the spacecraft and then the, the long flight time. It actually, you know, got to Jupiter long after I left JPL, but it was, that was one of the first things I worked on there. Um, I worked on the microwave radiometer. After that, I spent, um, four or five years working on Curiosity. Um, I was, uh, at JPL on their side, the lead on the APXS and REMS instruments and did a lot of uh, just kind of general engineering to support the scientific instruments on Curiosity. My background is kind of very heavily leans towards like instrumentation and signal processing. And, and that's kind of been the, the central theme. Uh, in 2012, late 2012, uh, about like six months after Curiosity landed and my stuff was all working, uh, I, uh, left JPL to start, uh, a, uh, an artificial intelligence company called Gridspace. Gridspace, two, uh, two co-founders, by the way, are, are two friends of mine from Stanford that have very different backgrounds than mine. The goal was, uh, w one thing that we, we learned, uh, and that inspired kind of creating the company is that in terms of applying, um, machine learning to speech and language, uh, there really has been no company, um, and no, and no one who's really focused on conversations, long form conversations like we're having today. Um, there's actually only a handful of companies, uh, historically at all that have worked on, uh, commercialized, uh, speech and language applications. And, and none of them have really focused on conversational speech. They've generally focused on very, uh, short form speech. Like you think like Siri or, uh, or interactive voice response systems that you might get when you call a call center. And those systems, uh, I mean, they have their own unique challenges, but, uh, from the AI perspective, uh, it was very, I mean, this, so this is 2012. So this is, you know, really when there started to be uh renewed interest in commercialized applications of machine learning, um, it was about the time of the, the Netflix challenge. It was before, uh, the popularization of deep learning. And so we were, we were very, very early to the party in terms of uh, applying deep neural networks to uh, complex speech and language tasks. Um, at this point, um, we do a pr pretty wide range of analytics on um, conversational speech. So we look at everything from the semantics and meaning of what you're saying, the exact words. Uh, we look at the emotional content, uh, the dialect. We look at the uh, prosody and how you say things in addition to kind of what the meaning of your, your words are. And we also uh, do some work on interactive conversational applications, uh, beginning to kind of automate things like call centers uh, using um, state-of-the-art uh, speech synthesis as well as uh, dialogue systems where um, we're beginning to do work on uh, especially in the call center environment, um, taking our very large data sets where, you know, we've analyzed uh, uh, over in the last year, over 2000 years of conversational speech data and beginning to, to apply that to build systems that understand the structure of these conversations and the, and, and the distribution of the types of conversations that you see in these contexts to build better dialogue systems that instead of being able to solve, you know, one task where you bark a command at it, um, are able to hold five, 10 minute task driven conversations with noise and, and, um, but in terms of passively analyzing conversations, I mean, there's a lot of additional challenges, which, you know, people rely on context for meaning. They use idioms, they interrupt each other. There's, um, a large amount that's required before the conversation even starts to understand the meaning of what's about to be said, much less the kind of, uh, rich dynamics of, of how people without even thinking about it encode meaning in, in what they say. Mm -hmm. Um, ranging from tone to word choice to word choice given the context of what they're talking about. 
Um, and so like, if I told you, like, I need to, I need to go down to the bank, um, you know, it means a very different thing if we're camping by river than if we're, mm. uh, if, 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 you know, I clearly am out of money at a restaurant. Um, and, uh, th- there's, there's thousands of examples in every conversation of, of, uh, how meaning is, 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 uh, layered, you know, emotionally and semantically. And so that's, th- those are the type of the problems that we, uh, study. Um, we, you know, we treat it as, as both a signal processing and machine learning problem, but also as a problem where there's kind of structural components that you have to build and inform, um, as well. And, and then also provide like interpretability to people that are, are consuming the, uh, the the results downstream. So like one of the things that I see joked about a lot is that, you know, machine learning is a bunch of if then statements and nobody really understands how it works. And we just kind of, you know, spin things up and, and let them go. What, I mean, as somebody who works with this day in and day out, like what's your impression of the field and, and what do you think, we've accomplished so far and, and where do you think this is all going? I mean, that's a really good and, and pretty complex question. Machine learning is not a new field. It is, uh, you know, a field with a pretty long history. I mean, if you include early work on, you know, function approximation theory and statistics, it's a very old field. And I think as a subfield of artificial intelligence um, and as a very hot piece of technology. It's, I think it's really new in a lot of people's consciousness, but really at the end of the day, the goal of machine learning is you have some statistical distribution that you're trying to efficiently approximate. So, you know, let's say, you know, you have, uh, you know, a classifier that, that identifies, you know, an object in an image, you know, there's some universe of, uh, of data that encodes an image and how a person would label the object in the image. And, you know, there's very unlikely things like, you know, a picture of Gaussian noise labeled with bird. And then there's very likely things like a picture of a dog uh, labeled dog. And uh, effectively, all of machine learning, no matter what you're doing, is just the kind of the art of approximating probability distributions efficiently. And so from that perspective, you're not really doing anything particularly new. We're just getting finding better ways to do it. The other thing is that there's been a lot of meta studies on machine learning. And if you, you know, if you take very old classical methods, um, and there's a limit to this, but if you take old classical methods, especially ones that maybe are not too old, and you provide them with, you know, scale and, and data sets that modern um, systems have access to, you can often reproduce, you know, modern results with older techniques. Um, there, there's, I mean, there's a lot of asterisks there, but the point is that I think a lot of the recent success of machine learning comes from compute power, parallelization, and also um, the increasingly large data sets that people have access to. And so I do think that that's like one good piece of kind of cold water, you know, even though I think there's incredibly, you know, amazing results in machine learning every day now. In terms of where I think it's going, I mean, there's a, there's a pretty storied history of excitement and progress in, in AI happening in fits and starts, uh, you know, and that's been happening for the last 70 years or longer, depending on, on mm-hmm. how, how far you want to look back. And um, I think part of the reason for that is that there's just a handful of, of fundamental machine and algorithm advances uh, or, or just like commercial interest that have, you know, caused, you know, bursts of development. And I think generally it's a really, really easy technology story for people 
to get very excited about. Mm. So I guess um I guess asking the obvious question is uh how can all this be brought to bear upon aerospace? Yeah, I mean there's there I think there's multiple ways that AI and, and machine learning are going to make a big difference on aerospace in the future. Unrelated and equally exciting things. If you think about the history of computing, I mean like the Apollo guidance computer was one of the first, probably in terms of that level of sophistication, probably the first computer made with integrated circuits. And if you think about what computation is, like, and you, you look at like back to like, you know, mechanical computers or proposals for things like the differential engine. Uh, and then you look at, uh, you know, very early mainframe computers that filled rooms. If you look at like kind of the history of computing, you know, we have been ever so gradually been trying to reduce the flops or the operations per pound and per watt. And um, ultimately, it is about power efficiency and and weight efficiency and size efficiency, which are the same constraints that drive you know systems more dramatically in aerospace. And that is just one very obvious uh, you know forcing function, which is if computation and by extension uh, machine learning, which we talked about, is like is ultimately about function approximation efficiently, or if, you know st- you know trying to approximate a statistical distribution very efficiently. Um, it, it is all about basically trying to achieve the most that you can given a certain energy and mass density. And so that's, I mean, the applications to aerospace, when you, when you frame it that way are pretty obvious, which is trying to get the most computation out of a light and low power system, which is what, what aerospace is all about. And so that's kind of an abstract way to think about it. But there's other kind of interesting ways to look at how aerospace uh, really is likely to be very affected by, you know, advances in machine learning. I mean, if you look at kind of science fiction as an inspiration, it's actually pretty hard to think of a classic science fiction or, uh, you know, uh, movie or, or, or book about space travel where AI doesn't play like a pretty central role, Um, almost as if like intellectually the the ideas are very linked in people's minds. I mean, but 2001, Interstellar, uh, Moon in film, or, you know, like, uh, you know, if you look at uh, Dune or the Foundation series, I mean, just like, you know, AI plays a pretty central role in a lot of stories, you know, Star Wars, uh, Lost in Space. And and, I mean, really, it's, 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 it's more an exception to find like a really interesting hard science fiction story mm-hmm. about space where AI doesn't play a role. And and I think that on, honestly, the reasons are kind of obvious, which is that the more complex the thing you're trying to do on your own without uh, a lot of infrastructure or people to support you, the more that uh, just like thought and access to computation is obviously very useful. When I think about like, you know, proposals for doing interstellar uh, unmanned, you know, space flight, or Mm -hmm. if you look at what people have proposed uh, with like the Starshot initiative and things like that, ultimately it's about extremes of space and power reduction. And if you look at, you know, where, you know, your, your mass goes, um, I mean, if it's, if, if it's a man, uh, space, you know, you're talking about man space flight, it's like 99% keeping people alive is where your mass is going. <laughs> right. And, um, if you look at, you know, unmanned uh, space flight systems, which is my background, uh, I mean, it's, it's a little bit more evenly distributed. Um, you know, uh, you, you're spending power keeping things warm. You're, spending power on things but ultimately that's the support you know instrumentation you know which is you know basically your senses it's to support uh you know your your uh, compute and power systems which you would have to do for for 
a living system and and it's also to communicate and if you are reducing your size of your uh instruments or your uh compute you don't need as much power to keep them warm if you're increasing the power efficiency of the compute you don't need to spend as much of your your limited power on compute and so if you're doing thing you know making inferences more efficiently or more fluidly you you don't need you know as much resources uh but most interestingly is i think communication so you know i mean you know if you look at like the link equation you know like the information theory limits of deep space communication you know it's all about energy per symbol or energy per bit i mean think about like let's imagine you send a postage stamp size probe to multiple distant stars and because of like one of our squared losses from communication and uh you, you know how far those distances are and probably how little power is available to that system uh you know that translates to a very very low symbol rate and if i ask you what the most uh, efficient compression algorithm that anybody knows is you know you might you know think you know or well, like lzw or, or mpeg or you know some some compression algorithm but really i mean if, if you if you get down to it like why do we go into space today you know for scientific reasons or for exploration reasons a lot of it is because we ultimately want to distill what we learn down into ideas mm -hmm. and so if you you know if you could send a system uh that had you know a deep level of autonomy on a mission like that target selection action selection uh reporting raw data back uh, you know, all of those, if those were assisted by, you know, really good machine learning or AI, where, I mean, the most efficient thing you could send back would be, you know, a scientific paper or a poem. Natural language is very, very efficient in terms of communicating ultimately what we really care about. You know, if you could send, you know, something that compressed, you know, and that, that smart back, you know, your, your ROI of your, your, um, unmanned scientific probe, your, your, you know, your, of your mission would be much higher versus, you know, if you're just sending raw images back, the amount of data you would need to send back to reach the same level of sophistication and in, in, in your, your conclusions is dramatically higher. Yeah, so that's interesting. So it's more about like emulating the human experience. Well, I mean, you know, ultimately, I mean, if you want to build uh, a, a space flight system that never talks to a person again and you just want to impact space, which no one wants to do, then that doesn't matter. But if ultimately the, you know, the, the goal of, of an unmanned space system is to communicate information to people, which is true of 100% of, mm -hmm. uh, uh, of space systems that aren't weapons, although you could ultimately mm. argue that's a communication system as well. <laughs> if that's the goal of, of the, the spaceflight mission, then yeah, then the better you do that, the better you do the mission. I mean, take, take, take an example of like, um, orbiters with really high, um, data requirements. So like an example might be, a weather satellite or or maybe something like a hyperspectral imager like push broom hyperspectral imager where you you're generating huge amounts of data on on the space spacecraft like let's say you have like a hyperspectral imager that's looking for um people who are growing opium or something you know if you send back raw hyperspectral imaging you know you're, you're only going to be able to image very very small areas and then analyze it on the ground with you know with a lot of effort and then you know and then choose another target and then image that um, by contrast like if you actually train the system to you know recognize at a high level oh that's opium from the you know the spectral characteristics or something or or that's you know uh that looks like a power uh, plant or that looks like deciduous forest or whatever you're trying to look for then the better your onboard algorithms it doesn't have to be a machine learning based system it could also be really good image processing or signal processing which are essentially trying to achieve the same purpose 
which is, you know, to take a, a signal that has many you know, uh, symbols in it or, or a lot of information in it and trying to re reduce the number of bits to get the same uh, recoverable information down when a person ultimately consumes it. Yeah, that's funny. That, yeah, you're making me think of, I know there's one telescope out there. I think it's a radio telescope. Uh, I don't know if it's ALMA or one of these other ones. And it's certainly going to be true for future generation things, at least on the ground, that they take more data than you can possibly handle. You know, you're getting terabytes per second or some ridiculous numbers. So I guess, yeah, having machine learning to be able to sort of pre-analyze what can get thrown out, what should actually be sent to have humans look at would be important. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I, I mean, I'm intentionally choosing this very dry way of looking at machine learning because I think it, mm. it, it helps you think with clarity if you think about it, you know, from the statistical standpoint or as a compression algorithm or as a function approximator. I mean, in, rea in reality, you know, you know, having better thinking systems opens the door to very high degrees of autonomy, which, you know, whether it's for a, you know, uh, quadcopter drone or a spacecraft, like high degrees of autonomy are, is extremely useful, right? The more decisions can be made by, by a machine, the less decisions have to be made in closed loop form with a person, whether it's a person on a spacecraft, you know, in a manned mission or, you know, many light years away in like an interstellar probe, the, the more autonomy you have, and the more intelligent the system is, the more complex things that, you know, you don't need to send people to do. And then if you think about like building, you know, a, a base on Mars, and you, you mean, this is, you know, it's very hard to think of like a story about terraforming where, you know, machines don't play a very big part in it, uh, you know, do the extreme being like a von Neumann machine or a machine where it self-replicates and, and, and uh, does everything completely on its own down to, you know, just relying on heavy machinery to, you know, to, to build a habitat like if you the more autonomy you have the more you know uh creative problem solving that you could you know maybe enable the less people you need to be doing this dangerous work of you know maybe building a habitat in space or terraforming a planet or you know fixing something you know if you could do fewer evas because a a clever autonomous system is more than capable of doing it i i, I mean i assume that you guys are you know advocates of manned space flight and and you know the the question i mean certainly at jpl the question that always came up and, and jpl is a pretty special place with that regard is like why do we send people to space at all and I, you know, I'm a big supporter of manned space flight. And the reason, you know, I, the most common answer is we send people because we're people. We want to know what is it like. We want to hear from someone. What is it like? We want to have the conclusions of a person. And we want that sort of like create, you know, creative problem solving and fluidity that, and, and autonomy that people have famously. But we also don't like blowing up people and space shuttles and uh, not going to Mars at all because it's too expensive or, um, because we're worried about radiation shielding or because we don't have funding for that or uh, because, you know, man certifying something for manned space flight, you know, costs a thousand times what it costs to send something, you know, that that doesn't have a life form on it. And so there's a lot of argument for autonomy and machine learning playing a growing role in space exploration because, you know, human spaceflight is expensive and hard. And it's not to say that, you know, you want to replace it, but you want to you treat it as an extremely rare resource in space until we've gotten a lot better at a lot of hard things that we're not very good at still. To be really cynical, like, you know, we haven't really done that many hard new things in manned spaceflight in, you know, like 50 years, you know, since the Apollo program. You know, we've done new things and, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be overly cynical, but like 
manned spaceflight, you know, is very expensive. It requires, you know, a government right now to be, you know, beating a drum for it to make progress because it's so expensive. And uh, I think as machine learning continues to make progress for other reasons, it's going to open the doors for both manned and unmanned space applications and aerospace applications that just wouldn't be economical uh, and, and, and it wouldn't be achievable in like, you know, uh, national GDPs, uh, you know, today. And, um, you know, that, that should be exciting to anybody. So just as you said, this is something that can help put people in space. But the main things that help get people in space, obviously, are first like getting there and then having somewhere to be once you're there. So how specifically can machine learning help in that regard? Because I think of things, you know, like very advanced rockets and like robots, like building habitats in space. So like, those are the things that I kind of focus on because yeah, I too am a huge fan of people being in space. And it seems that that is pretty much the bottleneck right there is that you have to have good hardware. And so I guess I was kind of assuming that machine learning can be used to make that process easier, which I know that it is because there's all kinds of interesting stuff being done now and so is there any way in which you're sort of like focusing on that aspect making hardware and using machine learning to do it uh, we don't you know i mean again you know my, my company focuses on speech but i know that um you know there are a lot of really hard design problems and control problems where machine learning today is in research and and uh and i think in um Commercial applications is playing a growing role. I, I think it, you, it'd be very hard to find a large technical company that doesn't mm -hmm. have someone, you know, whether whether they need to be there or not, doing machine learning. Um, I mean, <laughs> ma ma machine learning is, is a tool. It's a tool that is that ha shares a lot of common heritage with control theory and with signal processing and with statistics and other things that are, have always played a major role in with information theory that have always played a major role in um, in aerospace. And so I, I think there's probably people that today would, would call themselves machine learning engineers that maybe 50 years ago were data, you know, uh, were communication engineers or uh, data scientists or, or you know, uh, were focused on, on building ground systems that, that interpreted data or, or what, whatever it is. Um, or, you know, or the people who, who um, were working on, you know, very sophisticated, uh, very highly, tightly, you know, hand-designed uh, software systems, you know, and again, you know, for its time, the Apollo guidance computer had, you know, amazingly high degree of sophistication. I don't know if you guys have read like Digital Apollo or there's a couple books on the Apollo guidance computer um, and they cover just the incredible amount of, you know, it's bespoke sophistication mm -hmm. when you when you have you know an unlimited budget and unlimited like mit and ibm engineers you know and you have people mm -hmm. you know who can will hand weave mm -hmm. you know magnetic cores for you and uh, you know y you can achieve something that is you know decades ahead of the state of the art but you know it still was decades ahead of the state of the art and that you know that's that's incredibly remarkable and that was unambiguously driven by by manned spaceflight um and its requirements and so yeah, I think we're just going to, we will continue to see that. And, you know, I mean, if you, if, if you ask me what the most ex exciting thing in, in aerospace in the last 15 years has been, it's, you know, it's probably the use of, uh, you know, increasingly sophisticated control algorithms and even a little bit of autonomy in, in, in drones and, and quadcopters. And, um, you know, I mean, that's, that's a whole sector of the aerospace industry that did not exist 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, and you're, you're, you, I mean, you, you could find probably hundreds of startups built around, you know, autonomous flying systems 
And so, I mean, that's, that's really exciting. Not, not to mention, you know, uh, larger, uh, military and commercial, uh, uh, drones like, you know, like the global Hawk or the predator, um, which have obviously really transformed like warfare and surveillance, you know, I mean, um, you know, we don't have to worry about like U2 pilots being abducted in Russia or, you know, or wherever, uh, because we have the global Hawk, you know? And so you don't need to ask like how it's going to transform aerospace. It already has. Like that's what's transforming aerospace today is is autonomy and, and software. Um, I mean, if you if you pull the uh, the uh, radio off of a Global Hawk while it's in flight, it will find an airport and will land at the nearest airport completely without human intervention. Mm. I mean, that's an incredible mm. level of autonomy. And and if it can't find an air, uh, you know an airport, it'll blow up. And you know, I mean, it's like you know, wow. it's like really major decisions being made by machine intelligence on flying systems today. And, and it is, you know, changes the calculus of, of intelligence and warfare and, 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 and hopefully it's, it's, it will change the intelligence, you know, the, the calculus of a uh, unmanned spaceflight as well. And, you know, obviously in a lot of ways it always has, uh, but I think there's really, really incredible things that are possible. Like, can you, ima- can you imagine, you know, something that costs $10 to build that costs, you know, a couple thousand dollars to launch that could get to, you know, Jupiter and send back, you know, maybe it can't send back a ton of data, but maybe it can send back, yeah, some sentences or a poem or a paper, you know, I mean, or, you know, or a handful of, uh, you know, the, the lightest amount of information possible for people to learn a little bit more about Jupiter versus, you know, spending, you know, $10 billion and, and having, you know, $200 million launch. It's interesting because that that is a trade-off. It's not, you know, going to solve all the problems. Like if you don't have the raw data you can't do continuing study of that raw data but if you're having to choose between sending something cheap and not being able to afford to send anything at all like obviously that trade-off becomes really important yeah although that's the trade-off that's fundamental to compression in general like i mean mean, you know every single viewer of your podcast had the option of downloading you know a wave file or a flack um and you know you could deliver you know 44,000 you know hertz sampled audio that is nearly lossless to people but because of the way that the cochlea and the human auditorial system works where you know it's a lot easier for us to identify certain certain sounds and you know we logarithmically interpret frequency and all these other things that come from biology and from the and and that come from psychology and perception you know you're able to deliver you know literally you know one percent or at most like ten percent of that data to your your listeners with literally no loss of experience mm-hmm. it'd be in an imperceptible difference and you know y- yeah i mean at the extreme eventually the difference becomes perceptible but the goal is if you can do something that is as efficient as possible and then you just slightly grow your link budget or slightly go grow your compute budget. The goal is to, you know, get the exact same ROI. I mean, you know, like think about the Apollo mission. What really was the impact on the general public? It was the, the video of the landing. It was interviews and, and, and discussions with the astronauts that experienced it. Um, it was explanations of what happened. I mean, really, that's, that's really not a lot of data. I mean, you could read the Wikipedia entry on Apollo as a person and maybe watch a couple YouTube videos and really get the full end experience of, of that mission. Uh, I mean, of course it requires like the wonder and awe of imagining that you're that person that was there. But if, you know, you had, you know, uh, systems that were good enough at, you know, interpreting information and, and um, explaining it in a way with natural language that people, you know, experience the world, you know, you could maybe do a mission that 
had the same ability to inspire awe. I mean, obviously it's, it's hard to empathize with a machine, but when it's using human language and using human emotions to describe that, it, it gets easier. And, um, and people very naturally like to anthropomorphize, oh, yeah. you know, anything that, you know, feels like it's part of our tribe. And I think, um, that's going to be something that will be increasingly a tool available to us as, especially, you know, technology that, that has better perception and better natural language capabilities, you know, are evolving and that's evolving very quickly. So if, if you could have had some software on board the Opportunity Rover, you would have it actually text back, uh, what was it? It's getting dark and my, my battery's low. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the case of, um, of Opportunity, I mean, actually, and that's a good example, which is, uh, it's a little unfair because Opportunity was designed the last 90 days and it lasted, what, like uh, 13 years or 15 years. It really, it, it, it's incredible that it lived that long. And it's incredible that it made it, especially for, you know, it's a, yeah, so, a solar powered, uh, a solar powered mobile spacecraft on another planet. I mean, the, the fact that we, you know, you can engineer something to, to last 15 years in that circumstance. I mean, so solar panels degrade, they get covered with dust. And, and, and this, these were also like solar panels circa late nineties, early two thousands when, when they were selected and they were, you know, radiation hardened ones. Right. So these, this is like not circa 2019 on your roof, solar panels. And, uh, you know, same goes for the batteries and everything else. Like, the fact that I mean, opportunity was not supposed to last that long, and I, I think, but if yeah, if you look at the death of opportunity and 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 ten years ago of spirit, you could make the argument that it was not a problem with its solar panels, it was not a problem with its you know wheels, it was a problem with its ability to save itself in a, a situation. You know, in the case of spirit, it, it, you know, the, the, the save itself when it get got caught in a ditch. You know, think about how you know how hard it was. For engineers, uh, you know, this was happening when I first got the JPL was they were trying to save Spirit. Uh, you know, Spirit got stuck. And the problem with being stuck is that you can't tightly close the loop on a situation. Um, it required people on the ground at, you know, basically a, a day delay. Um, I mean, it's possible to directly do things with, with the uh, Mars rovers. But in reality, you know, the, the operations are on a, you know, Mars day cycle. And you normally uplink, you know, new commands uh, once a day. I mean, that's not always how things are done, but that's normally how things are done. So you have this really low quality perception link coming from Mars to Earth. And you have this really low quality, you know, action link coming from Earth to Mars. And all that translates to, you know, Spirit was not able to get itself out of its ditch and and get somewhere warm where it could stay warm and, and, and get enough electricity during the, the Mars winter. Uh, and, and opportunity, you know, wasn't able to, to survive a sandstorm. You know, if you built into a system like that, a strong desire to survive, uh, a desire not to feel cold, the desire not to be hungry or not get enough light, an understanding of the dynamics of its world, the dynamics of itself when it takes actions, um, in, in that environment, uh, you know, at a level of sophistication and, and a tight level of control that you cannot do at a 25 hour delay. Then I think, you know, a system with all the same hardware otherwise, you know, which is a very weird system to imagine, uh, may have survived. Like autonomy is a big part. And, and don't get me wrong, already a big part of the engineering that JPL has to do is autonomy, but it also often takes the form of fault protection. I mean, the most sophisticated and the highest degree of autonomy on curiosity is its fault system. Um, in my opinion, you know, I mean, in general for space missions, autonomy is like not very desirable because autonomy is also unpredictability. 
And so, you know, the way curiosity is commanded is you give it a sequence of commands that operate at one hertz. You know, you can do at most one command per second and you can do a couple commands as, uh, you know, sequences in, in, in parallel. I think it's like 16. And, you know, those commands are very high level, but they really perform a series of, of operations in sequence. I mean, you, you see some autonomy, especially in control systems for things like arm placement. Um, and you can write a little bit of autonomy into like loops and, and, and branching and, and sequences. And certainly like when you're landing, you know, you have control systems, which are a form of a very light and, and necessary form of autonomy where, you know, you're closing the loop on your radar, you're closing the loop on your thruster, you're closing the loop on your IMU. And so you have autonomy when you need it because you, there was not a person there to command the spacecraft. But, uh, and, you, and you know, like the LEM in Apollo is perfectly capable of landing itself. Neil Armstrong did it because, you know, he would have thrown a fit if they wouldn't have let him. <laughs> but that's true. Like, it was perfectly capable of landing itself. And, you know, just using closed-loop controls, it was not a very hard problem even then. By extension, uh, you know, I think that uh, simplicity and predictability are really important to unmanned spaceflight. That said, the fault protection system on Curiosity, um, a lot of which, you know, it comes from lessons learned very hard, where mission, you know, where spacecraft have been lost are lessons that were learned, um, you know, in terms of losing a spacecraft, like, oh, if only we could have had it like do this path or, you know, so there's all these incredible failovers on curiosity, uh, you know, where like, okay, well, if we haven't heard from earth in three days, you know, try doing, you know, uh, uh, direct to earth, you know, communication. And if you can't find, you know, maybe, maybe your pointing is off, like try to, you know, uh, do a sun find and, and recalibrate, you know, your, your, your pointing and try to, you know, do a direct to earth again. And, and, and like there, there's this very, very, and then, you know, in terms of, uh, failover of compute, I mean, you know, curiosity has been having problems with, uh, with its computers the last, uh, six months. And a lot of that autonomy, uh, you know, is what probably saved them from, from losing the spacecraft. I mean, of course it wasn't that dire because they've gone through that with other spacecraft and, and those lessons are baked into, uh, JPL's design rules and, and, and how they design fault systems, but the high, the high degree of sophistication and autonomy. And, um, I mean, you mentioned like, you know, machine learning just being a big series of if statements. Like, I, I mean, I don't know if I would go to that extreme, although you, you could certainly could re-express any machine learning model probably as a, as a series of if statements, uh, of, you know, sufficient number, but you know, you can, you can write a hard, hard, high degree of autonomy with just rules. I mean, what are, what are normally called expert systems where lots of logic and rules and inference, logical inference rules can translate to a high degree of autonomy. And that's exactly what, you know, the focus of, of the field of AI was like, for example, for instance, in, in the eighties or in the fifties uh, and sixties, and this is what they call good old fashioned AI, which is, you know, using logic and inference rules to encode knowledge about the world. And then, um, and then, forming conclusions from those. And, and, you know, that's essentially what software engineering is, especially that type of software engineering where you try to have a high degree of sophistication and an autonomy. And that's why, you know, so much, so much scrutiny on like curiosity was, was on like the fault system and on, on the EDL timeline where you have a, 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 the highest degree of autonomy by contrast, like, you know, some stuff like that was very low risk. Um, you know, a lot of the software was delivered after curiosity had landed you know, it was just tested on the ground, validated on the ground. You've talked about things in ways that I haven't really thought about them. And I, <laughs> I really appreciate that. This was an interesting little, a, a different perspective than what we, than the way that we normally think about these things, because, you know, I, I think that all of our listeners are going to be familiar with a lot of the automation that you've 
kind of discussed, but thinking about it in a different way is valuable. These are these are always the best interviews when we're like, okay, we're gonna wind this wind this person up and let them go because we don't know what we don't even know <laughs> what what questions to ask. All right, well, thank you so much, Anthony, for for spending this time talking to us. I feel like we've learned about how we think about things, like not necessarily new facts, but new ways of approaching those facts, and I think that's uh, really valuable. Um, we have two traditional final questions. The first one is, where would you like to be found on the internet? So, um, my, I'd like to be found on the internet. You can go to gridspace.com uh, or scuderi.com, and uh, you can um, you know find Gridspace at uh, on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. Scuderi is s c o d a r y dot com. S c o d a r y dot com. Uh, so, Anthony, if you could bring one object with you into space, what would it be? If I could bring one object into space, am I safe? Is the space mission yes? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're kind of thinking probably like a, a commercial space station or maybe ISS. So you're you're probably a tourist. You might have some duties, but uh, but yeah, you're safe. You're not having to worry about bringing an oxygen mask. I think uh, I think I'd bring my my chocolate lab Higgins. <gasps> oh. uh, you know, dog dogs dogs were in space before people, and I think they're underrepresented today, uh, <laughs> even though they were the uh, original space pioneers. When was the last time a dog was in space? I guess it had to have been during the the fifties, I guess, or sixties, maybe. I, I don't I don't know if it was ever done after Leica. I don't know if other dogs went to space. Yeah, well, there were there were two. Belka and Strelka were after Leica, and I think there was at least one or two more. I don't think it's been since the sixties. Hmm. Great, yeah, yeah. Puppy in space, stand down for it. I don't I don't know how well dogs actually do <laughs> bouncing around inside of a space station. I guess it probably depends on the temperament of your dog. He he would, he would hate it. Yeah, so so would mine. All right, well, thank you so much for your time, and I guess we'll talk to you later. All right, thanks, guys. Let's do some upcoming launches. We got a uh, well, we got like four of them, I think, this week, and a couple other things. So, what's the first thing we have here, Dennis? So, on March fourteenth, we've got the Soyuz FG. We'll take we'll be taking uh, Soyuz MS twelve to the station. Uh, it'll begin Expedition sixty by carrying cosmonaut Alexei Ovchinin and astronauts Christina Hammond Koch and Nick Haig to the International Space Station, uh, where they will begin their six month stay after rendezvous. And so again, it'll be March fourteenth at nineteen fourteen UTC with an instantaneous launch window. And then once they're in orbit, there'll be additional uh, broadcasts available on NASA TV. So. March 14th at 8.15 p.m. Eastern Time, they will do the docking coverage. Docking is actually scheduled at 9.07 p.m. Eastern Time. And then shortly after that, they will be doing the hatch opening and welcoming ceremony. The coverage starts at 10.30 p.m. Hatch opening is scheduled at approximately 11.10 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time, of course. Then next up is a Vega launch, and that is launching Prisma. Or Prisma, I guess. Uh, Prisma. Prisma. Let's let's see. This is an Italian acronym. You think I can do this one? Uh, this is a Precursore uh. Iperspetrale della Missione Applicativa. <laughs> it's my best Rock, Mario okay. impression. <laughs> Um, and it is a medium-resolution hyperspectral imaging mission of the Italian Space Agency. It will provide a unique contribution to the observation of natural resources and the study of key environmental processes. So basically, you know, a monitoring type of satellite. That's launching on March 15th at 0150 and 35 seconds UTC. No window there to speak of so i guess it might be instantaneous but they just might not have provided that information but that's launching from launch area one in kuru and also on march 15th we've got a delta 4 m plus 54 carrying the wgs 10 
which is the 10th and final satellite in the wideband global SATCOM constellation. Uh, this launch will be taking place on March 15th at 2256 UTC with a launch window from 2256 to 0102 UTC. Launching from Space Complex 37B in Cape Canaveral. And then finally, we've got another fun one. On mm. March 16th, is flying the Electron. It is carrying DARPA R3-D2, uh, which has got to be an intentional reference to Star Wars. Um, so this uh, R3-D2 stands for Radio Frequency Risk Reduction Deployment Demonstration. So I guess that's RFR2-D2, <laughs> but R2-D2 is probably... Uh, uh, trademarked, <laughs> as if it matters, because uh, R3-D2 is a DARPA mission, so they get to do what they want to do. Um, so it basically, it's testing a prototype uh, reflective array antenna, um, which is uh, pretty cool. Um, so again, that's flying on uh, March 16th at 22.30 hours UTC, and then they have a window extending to 02.30 hours on March 17th, the next day. Alrighty, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Cool. And with that, we will deorbit the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And we have two new Adco-level supporters we'd like to thank. Uh, the first is Stephen South, and the second one is a pseudonym, Lord High Fixer. Thank you so much, guys, for supporting the show. If you want to support the show as well, uh, you don't have to pay us money to get your name on the show. Uh, just leave us a review wherever you listen. Uh, or you can visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks.